Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Reggie Williams. Dr. Williams is an associate professor of Christian ethics at McCormick Theological Seminary and the author of Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, Harlem Renaissance Theology, and an Ethic of Resistance. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, yeah. I've been, a, I've been a fan of your work for a while. Um, when I first started uh, Bonhoeffer Studies, um, I, I sort of just YouTubed Bonhoeffer Scholarship, and uh, I found your talk at, I think it was Wheaton a few years ago on um, oh, yeah. on your book, and that's sort of, so that was my first introduction, so since, as soon as I started this thing, I was, I was you've been on the list for a while, so I'm, I'm glad we can finally make it happen. Wonderful. Yeah, that was a while ago. That was actually before the book. A little before the book. I think I may have been writing the book at that time. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. Um, so how did you how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Glenn Stassen, my, uh, my, my doctor father. Oh, um, really? Mentor, yeah. He made a number of Bonhoeffer scholars. Um, but more specifically, I can recall in my first class that I took with him in my first year of doctoral studies, he asked me to... TA for him, and of course he was teaching on Bonhoeffer. He wanted me to, to get to know who Bonhoeffer was, and I'd known of Bonhoeffer, but um, yeah, I was really interested in doing what Glenn suggested that I would do, um, so I had such reverence for him. And in that class, I was introduced to a perspective on Bonhoeffer. Glenn was certain that this transformation I should say that the ability to see the Nazis as wrong well before others did in Nazi Germany was due to his time in New York. That was Glenn. Hmm. That, you know, in particular, his time spent at Abyssinian Baptist Church and then talking with Lucere. And he, John Lucere, who we'll maybe we talk about a little bit later, but he got this from a couple of people um, who had written about Bonhoeffer. Um, uh, earlier, one American woman whose name is escaping me at the moment. It's because we have a new puppy and I didn't sleep last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, she'll come to me a little bit later. Um, uh, I teach her work, actually, after her, the, this article, article that she wrote in the 70s. Um, but anyway, Glenn, uh, Glenn was arguing that um, based on what that article had said, that, that, that essay had said, and from his own interaction with Bonhoeffer, that Abyssinian Baptist had, a, had an impact on him. I also knew from a course that I had taken as a master's student of theology and art that he was in New York during the Renaissance, because I, I put the time together, two and two together, when I was TA for him, and this, the time that he was at Abyssinian. 1930-31, that corresponded with what I had studied about um, Aaron Douglas. Um, so, did a little bit of scratching in research about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but just beneath the surface was all of this stuff hmm. that hadn't been touched. So yeah, I, that's in short, it was I met him through Glenn and TA for him on Bonhoeffer, hmm. in a class of Bonhoeffer. So what's, uh, I, I guess, w- to jump into kind of the content of your book, you mentioned, uh, I think you said Aaron Douglas. Uh, I, have, I know nothing about the Harlem Renaissance. So 
um, what what is it? Oh, sorry, what was it? What was going on in Harlem at the time? And I guess just providing some context for when Bonhoeffer lands in, in New York, what, what's going on? The Harlem Renaissance is really a watershed moment in both African-American history, also in the global black diaspora. Hmm. So um, within the global world, that had been dispersed from Africa in the pro, in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, Harlem becomes this kind of epicenter for a, an, a self-assertive voice, a voice speaking from a black world about about human being and and um, about black humanity. Um, the movement is is broader than Harlem, but it takes Harlem as its name, but you've got pockets of it happening, say Paris, um, as a kind of an, as a, as a kind of a, a neutral spot within the, um, Atlantic, you should say on the black Atlantic. And I say, I use the word phrase black Atlantic, um, Afro British scholar, Paul Gilroy coins this term as a space where taken from Africa, from the continent of Africa on the Atlantic Ocean, while spread going into the into the the triangle, which was you know Europe, um, Africa, and the Western um, continents, um, this space in the Atlantic Ocean is the space where um, Africans are split into myriads of cultures all around the world, all subject to whites-only power structures. Mm. Um, so it's, he calls it the Black Atlantic, the space of the Middle Passage, where this this rhizomorphic event happens. And a rhizomorph is what happens in a, to a rock in a geology lab when you hit it with a, with a hammer. The crack spreads rhizomorphically, or a root system going into the ground um, where the roots spread all over the place, rhizomorphically. Hmm. The Black Atlantic is rhizomorphic black space where black people are spread all over the place. Um, 1925, uh, um, in the context of the Great Migration from the Southern States to the Northern States, Opportunity Magazine is launched as a part of the National Urban League. The National Urban League is creating space for black writers to be published, one. Secondly, for um, literature and culture to be described with a black uh, voice from black people. It's a writing contest by Opportunity Magazine, and then the second one is NAACP's magazine, Crisis. These start collecting authors, scholars, short stories, poems, novels by black people. Hmm. It kicks off this, liter this, this literary movement. Um, later, there's um, visual arts, the Harmon Foundation, and then there's also music. All of this is happening, um, taking Harlem as the, as the location, or at least the destination of choice for the Great Migration, and as the as the kind of the name for the movement. But you've got these you've got these houses of authors and intellectuals in Chicago, uh, prominently in Washington D.C. and in New York. So it's a movement. Hmm. in multiple um, aesthetic modes of black people taking um, up the conversation about humanity 
um, they, in a way that would include black people in, the, in, in a moment in which black humanity is oxymoronic hmm. to say that. Wow. Uh, for a long period of time in the United States, that's, the, that's just been the case, even today, sure. in many respects. Uh, so he enters into Harlem during this movement. Wow. Yeah. Wow, this is happening. He, he, he's in Harlem. He um, picks up a bibliography of prominent um, black writers from the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library. I, I have. I mean, I took a picture. I don't have it. I held his bibliography that he picked up that he was reading through. Wow. Um, took pictures of it. Took pictures of every page. <laughs> I to apologize later. Um, if I wasn't supposed to do that, um, just you go to the library in Berlin and his holdings. He brought all this, he brought a bunch of stuff back with him, including uh-huh. that bibliography. Um, yeah, so he went there, picked that up. He met people, as he says, also prominent leaders of the Young Negro Movement is what he called it. It was went by several names at that time in D.C. when he visited Howard University with Al Fisher, who we'll talk about also. But he was he was engaged in this. Wow, yeah. that's so interesting. Um, yeah. how, how does he get connected with Al Fisher? Fisher was one of I think two black students at Union at that time. Fisher had just graduated from Howard. Um, his dad was a prominent pastor, hmm. but also was a um, um, a scholar in his own right. He did a um, master's degree at the University of Chicago Div School. They're, they're uh, educated family, Fishers are. Hmm. His family has really become my family now. His daughter, who introduced me to the whole family, she's like my second mom. <laughs> um, so they, um, they're an educated, she actually calls herself my, my mom, second mom. They're an educated family. She, yeah, he was there um, at the same time Bonhoeffer was. And Bonhoeffer was a Sloan Fellow. Hmm. By the way, Sloan Fellowship is given to three European um, students who would come and finish a bachelor's degree. Um, sorry, we call it a master's, an MDiv now. They'd come and finish an MDiv. Um, Bonhoeffer had um, habilita- a dissertation and habilitation and a university. <laughs> By the time he got there, he didn't need any more seminary training. But um, So the German Sloan fellow was a bit more advanced than the Swiss and the French one at that time. Huh. Um, but yeah, he comes in at, during that year and Fisher just graduated college and was there to get a master's degree. And he was assigned to Abyssinian Baptist as a part of his, um, um, what do you call it, field studies, not field studies, we do that at McCormick, but his um, internship mm-hmm. for his um, master's degree program was at Abyssinian and took um, his German friend with him. But Bonhoeffer had already taken a tour of Harlem in October and was interested in seeing all sorts of things, which I got the flyer he kept for whatever reason. <laughs> he kept that flyer that was advertised on campus. Um, yeah, he'd, he'd done tour, visited, and then he went with Fisher. And both of them were teaching Sunday school. Bonhoeffer would teach midweek Bible study to uh, women at the church as well. Hmm. So with that, with that uh, Sloan Fellowship um, that that he got. How does he, I mean, do you know if, how he comes to that conclusion that he, like, he finishes all the school and decides, I'll go to New York for a year? You know, does he, do we have any reason why he would do that? Yeah, he was, um, 
he was set to be ordained. And Wolf Diesel, the man who's in charge of this ordination process, um, well, he finished his habilitation, his dissertation and his habilitation, and he was 24. He, he needed to be 25 to be ordained. He was too young. Uh. So um, rather than head right into the teaching position uh, and, um, and in preparation for ministry, Diesel thought that he, on, on um, his recommendation or the application process for him to come to Union, um, actually for his for, for ordination. Now, I'm re- trying to remember if it was for ordination or for the recommendation for the Sloan Fellow. Diesel uses the word ruddy, <laughs> young and ruddy. He's too, he's a bit young yeah. for this. Um, so they want him to go to see the world a bit on one hand, to try and, you know, maybe mature him a bit. Um, also to work on his English. So they, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that he would come to the United States. Hmm. England was also considered. Actually, actually Britain, Britain was considered um, as well. Um, but they settled on the United States, and specifically, he settled on New York because of the opportunities for learning outside of the classroom. He was not interested in obligatory classes with obligatory lectures and obligatory textbooks. I mean, the European system for doing a PhD is very different, especially mm-hmm. the Germans, very, very different. He was not interested in being under one person or any any two people, <laughs> and he didn't. He wasn't. He didn't do that when he was in New York. He spent most of his time in Harlem. Hmm. He wasn't under anybody at the Union. So, in I mean, I keep going on. Here. No, you're good. Your questions, but the in short, he was too young to be ordained. And the um, Diesel, who was in charge of the ordination process, wanted him to see the world a bit and to learn and to, and to better his English. Hmm. So that's great. Could have gone to Harvard. Could have gone to Harvard. Could have <laughs> gone to Yale. Could have gone to University of Chicago. But he was interested in what was happening in New York at the time, and I think he had already there was, there was already some familiarity um, with the Harlem Hellfighters, which was all black. Uh, military regiment, army regiment, hmm. out of New York. They were shipped over to France, attached to a French um, regiment, because they were not allowed to fight along white, alongside white soldiers, white soldiers in the United States. So they went over there, and there was derogatory mail that followed them from military leaders here in the United States, saying, hmm. don't treat them as equal, um, keep them away from your white women, oh. stuff like this. But they were a brilliant group of soldiers, and the person in charge of them was a musician. Uh, um, during that Harlem, I mean, actually, yeah, he was he was a musician, a wonderful musician, and they were jazz. They, they brought jazz. They were jazz musicians. Well, they brought jazz to Europe. Um, today, if you go to France, um, I believe it's on the left bank in Paris, you'll find um, nightclubs where they play jazz, where they were familiar, they were made familiar with jazz because of these black soldiers. Jazz was also in the Weimar Republic, which existed from 1918 to 1933, mm. um, which, um, you know, it's Bonhoeffer's student years, uh, uh, up to 1930, before he comes over to the United States. Those are his, those, there's a time period in which he's a student um, where he would have been familiar during the Weimar, Weimar Republic um, with jazz. 
he'd have encountered it and would have heard about black people. He was reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, before he went over as well. But um, that doesn't introduce him to black people. That's very mm-hmm. interesting. So, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. But, uh, yeah. That's, um, but he was somewhat as white people and Europeans looking through the eyes of, like Harry Beecher Stowe, a black experience. Yeah. I mean, he'd been somewhat interesting to him. But, yeah, he was already somewhat familiar with um, what was there, what may have been there in New York mm-hmm. through the through jazz. Wow. That's so interesting. So who are the, he gets over there, who yeah. are the main characters that he sort of, that sort of influence him while his time's there? You said Al Franklin, uh, sorry, Al, Albert Franklin Fisher. Um, you said, yeah. you mentioned something about Lasser. Yeah, so the four that people um, mostly highlight, and it's bugging me that I cannot remember the name, but the four that people highlight typically are um, uh, Paul Lehman, who became a professor at Union, a noted professor, had a very illustrious career in the academy, mm-hmm. um, but he was writing his dissertation during Bonhoeffer's year of study there. Um, uh, and Erwin Sloan Fellow, Jean Lasserre, who was a French Sloan Fellow, and Al Frank- Franklin Fisher, um, who had just finished his, this is him finished his, his um, bachelor's degree, this is uh, BA, hmm. at, at uh, Howard, uh, at Howard uh, University, it was Howard College at the time. But there are also others. Uh, there, there are a number of others, and I just point to two others: Miles um, Horton and Jim Dum, Jim Dombrowski. Miles Horton and James Dombrowski. Jim Dombrowski. Mm-hmm. Um, they they founded the school, the the Highlander Folk School, and Bonhoeffer was friends with them um, uh, during his during their time together at Union Seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, the scholar whose name I couldn't remember, Ruth Zerner, who oh. wrote this article in the 70s, who names four people, specifically that Bonhoeffer was close with. Yeah, um, she, she names those four. Uh, but those two, I would, I would point them, I was pointed them as well. Um, I believe it's in 1933 when Bonhoeffer writes back to Union and he's, uh, he's um, making a recommendation for his cousin uh, to be a Sloan Fellow. Hmm. to Union. And in that letter, he also asks, I believe it's Jim that he's he's speaking to, to please return his letter on the Harlem Renaissance intellectuals that he, in his, his essay on Harlem Renaissance intellectuals that he'd written. He, want, he wants to um, know his grade, maybe, also keep the essay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um, those, are, those are, I would point to Lasserre, Fisher, Sutz, Lehman, Dombrowski, and Horton. Six hmm. different people. I, I, there are others as well, but I would point. To, I would highlight them. Wow, and so, so I guess just just a, a brief overview. You don't have to go through all all six. What are the things he he comes away changed from that undeniably from his experience in New York? What are the things that he learned from from who? I guess what did he learn from Fisher that shaped him? What did he learn from Lasserre? Well, um, when people have looked at that time, um, 
in years past, what they would focus on is Lasserre's witness, his pacifism, mm-hmm. his Christian pacifism, and his emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount, no doubt had an influence on Bonhoeffer. Dialogues back and forth about the Sermon on the Mount in Bonhoeffer before he comes to New York isn't keen on talking about concreteness, concrete guidance. He's, mm-hmm. he's very keen on concreteness. But he's not, he's not keen on talking about statements that the church can make or that come from God that Christians must follow. For him, the concept of Christian morality or, or Christian faithfulness, we might, might say, Christian discipleship is much more dynamic mm-hmm. um, and not something that you might say, as the question is asking later, can the church make statements or make claims that, that believers must follow? Um, but that doesn't happen. Um, but in conversations with Lasser, the Sermon on the Mount becomes some concrete guidance from God, from Christ. Mm-hmm. Specifically, guided commandments to obey. That he gets in conversation, no doubt, with Lasserre. But it's important to recognize the conversations with Lasserre are happening at the same time that he's being significantly influenced by Harlem. Something happens to him in Harlem that takes him from having developed a theological concept into concern with being a Christian, into discipleship. Mm-hmm. Harlem does this and has this, this change in his understanding of himself as Christian that makes the concrete commandments something that are important to him. He's looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a result of his engagement with people whose whole beings are under the gospel. And suffering is the connection to Christ, not power. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, so with Lasserre, uh, with, with Fisher, and Abyssinian Baptist, and the Harlem Renaissance, there's a connection to Christ in suffering. Whereas in Germany, prior to his time prior to coming to New York, the church is effectively compartmentalized. It's bourgeois. It's part of Bildungsbürgertum culture. Bildungsbürgertum would be um, German bourgeoisie, the educated elite. Hmm. Um, and he's of that class. He's of the educated elite, Bildungsbürgertum. And, um, you know, I mean, you don't have a working class people who are in church, um, and, you, and the church doesn't really speak to the events happening in society. And there's all kinds of suffering. In the wake of World War One, Great Depression, um, the shame and everything, all of the stuff that the Nazis helped to pick up, that they picked up on, okay, that are present there, and they're going to save them from that. Um, but there's all of this stuff that's happening that the church doesn't speak to, doesn't, doesn't have any voice into that. He comes to Harlem um, in an Abyssinian, in a black church context, the church is all of the, the church speaks to that. It most definitely speaks to this. Um... It makes sense of it with Christ identifying with us in all of this. Yeah. If Christ is with us in this. Christ brings us also to Sunday morning in the resurrection. The being is spoken to, is, is, is 
is complete. Their their um, life is under the gospel, and that makes an that has a huge impact on them. And it's from that vantage point that he's reading the Sermon on the Mount or having dialogue about the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. You cannot separate two of them. Yeah. It's important to recognize that. Otherwise, you have uh, you got these these two white guys having an intellectual dialogue about Matthew five through seven at Union. And you forget that the majority of his time, as layman would tell us, is spent in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Wow. Not with Lasser. Lasser's not there. <laughs> yeah. Not in Harlem. So Lasser's at Union. <laughs> Incredible. So yeah, it seems that that would line up with sort of his transition towards um, like Luther's theology of the cross, a, a God that embraces weakness is hidden is a is oppressed <laughs> and that he yeah. sorts of see connect those dots from sort of his his roots and then leave behind a lot of the the things that he brought with them and embracing um this kind of new more concrete form of obeying the will of god hearing the will of god and and taking the sermon yeah. lot seriously yeah so discipleship is still dynamic but there's something concrete from Christ that we follow in that dynamism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't come to the moment of encounter with principles. We come to the moment of encounter with commandments. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the moment of the moment of encounter where Christ demands a decision is guided by content that we get from um, from the claims. To follow after Jesus, hmm. that's what you get in, in discipleship. Um, and he's already talking about that when he comes back from New York. When he's he's writing, he writes an essay in 1932 talking about cheap grace. Yeah, makes the, makes makes reference to the to cheap grace and costly grace. Costly grace is following after Jesus. That's something I really appreciated about your book. Um, so I just finished my master's thesis, and my topic was autonomy. And Bonhoeffer's work, I, I kind of see it all as um, his writings as being about surrendering autonomy to uh, never start from the self, only hear from God from the outside, hearing and doing, simple obedience, all of that stuff. And then it's never, it's not based on principles other than the principle that you just keep going to God and do what he says. Um, uh, so yeah. as I was reading that in your book, I was like, oh, this is, this is so great. I'm so excited to talk to him about this. Um, yeah. So I was, I want, yeah. was wondering... Bonhoeffer comes, he has this year-long experience and is profoundly changed and returns and it kind of shapes the rest of his life. Uh, how do you think his perception of Jesus changed from the, the Jesus that he believed in or thought of as he was coming to America and then as, as he was returning to Germany? What do you think the difference was? That's one of the more important questions uh, to discuss. I... I framed it according to where he had done his dissertation and habilitation hmm. when I wrote the when I wrote my book. He's trained in a community of empires. And Europe effectively moved the location of God's salvific work in the world from the Middle East to Europe. Connected it to centers of knowledge where they're accumulating all language and knowledge of cultures and civilizations and 
really matters related to heaven and earth within European epistemological banks, you know, universities. That's where he's trained at. Another way of saying that is, as Edward Said would say, the Orient has culture and in the center, the empires, they study culture. So he's trained there. Um, in this connection to Christ, there would have been in power. Mm. Um, and we're either in power or longing to regain power. So you might say having arisen in power. And the, um, the concept of self-retraiting that he assembles at that time, no doubt has in it this reborn Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, because um, that changes for him during his time in New York, where he sees this ecumenical group pass a resolution letting to say that we don't blame German people for the war and asks him to go and make sure that Bonhoeffer knows this and go back and tell your people we don't blame you for the war. And that's huge for him. He goes from this folk-centered understanding of the world to family, brother and sisterhood, a Christian family. Mm -hmm. Use the language of brotherhood would fit with a patriarchal Bonhoeffer's worldview because he was patriarch. <laughs> he was definitely patriarchal. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, uh, so he goes, he, he, it changes the whole perspective for him. He's not just folk-centered. Yeah. Now he's a part of the Christian ecumenical world. That is one thing that changes for him significantly. The other one I would argue that he moves from risen with power and connecting to the European empires um, in power to connecting with uh, Christ hidden in suffering hmm. to, to a connection in the one who suffers. He still stays pretty tethered to a perspective of European world powers and even the European world powers as a place of understanding Christ's presence in the world as he says in ethics is formation and heritage decay in ethics later so there are issues with him still as this um, imperial imperialist still mm -hmm. has he still struggles with that um, but the way that Christ's present in the world is can be seen in identification with uh, with suffering I think that's a transition for, for him mm -hmm. That happens in New York. Wow. So Bonhoeffer has this new vision of, of new for him, this vision of, of the Black Christ. Um, where do we see this show up in his writings after he leaves New York? Um, I mean, I would point right away to the Catechism he writes. If somebody comes back, I would start there, and you can trace a thread from that. So when he comes back from New York, he writes a Catechism with Franz Hildebrand. Um, his Jewish friend hmm. prior to New York, you know, murder can be sanctified, war can, uh, war can be sanctified, murder can be, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, Sure. Uh, that war and murder can be justified for the sake of my folk. Mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a sermon, I'm sorry, a lecture he preaches basic questions of the Christian ethic in 1929, 29, I believe it is. Um, 
other kind of magnanimous claims like that change. 1931, he comes back and he says, the Christian prays only for peace. Only for peace. That's great. It's a huge shift. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then he also says that although the Christian might, oh, actually, he says that God has made it from one blood all people who dwell on the earth. Therefore, I, um, ethnic pride is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Wow. The claims of ethnic pride, you know, and located within the moral scope of one's worldview as sin, out of bounds. Mm. This is this this claim about ethnic pride is happening uh, when this notion of the Aryan or the Nazis is picking up some steam here. Folkish worldview, the Germanic, the Herenrus. He's he's naming this as a problem, a Christian problem. That's when he comes back, and then he says that all the Christians don't want to act political. Here, I'm paraphrasing again. There may come a time when you, the Christian must act political hmm. for the sake of loving your neighbor. That's not, this is not German, Luther. This is important. Hmm. This is the summer he comes back. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then must act political for the sake of loving your neighbor. This is in 1931. Fast forward in 1933 and the church and the Jewish question. When the um, he, he lays this thing out by, um, he's engaging with the Adiaphora controversy. I'm not sure if you if you're know about that, or the um, listeners know about that, uh, but in the conversation about things in different um, that's an old Lutheran argument about what should count as uh, Christian concerns hmm. um, and what things we should be indifferent about. Um, uh, without going into great detail about that, the Jewish question becomes one of these things. Yeah. Um, and he's pressing, it into, he's pressing it into question as something that is now a Christian concern. But in this, in this um, essay, The Church and the Jewish Question, he starts off by saying what the, what the church is, the, the, role, the right role of the church is, and what's the wrong role of the church. The church is not supposed to be interacting into the state realm. Because the church is the right hand of God, and the church is the, I mean, and the, and the state is the left hand of God, and the two don't mix. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, he's laying this whole thing out there. But what, under what conditions should the state be considered when it makes too much Laws passes too much laws, and it's encroaching upon the place of the church, impending, um, not allowing the church to do its role, or when it doesn't make enough laws and doesn't protect its citizens. Hmm. In which, in in either one of these situations, the government has become illegitimate, and the church has three responses that it can take here. One, it can speak out. Two, it can bind up the wounds of those who are wounded, whether they belong to the church or not, whether they're Christian or not. Here speaking about Jewish people. And the last one is a famous phrase, which, I, which most people who know about Bonhoeffer's, um, it's translated sometimes erroneously, put a spoke in the wheel, mm -hmm. um, which oftentimes, when we imagine a, a tire doesn't work, to put a spoke in it, it helps it roll better. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that the church should throw itself into the spokes of the wheel, interrupt the government, direct political engagement. Mm -hmm. Rewind that tape to 1931. 
acting political for the sake of loving your neighbor. Come back to this essay, 33, Church and the Jewish Question. Direct political engagement on behalf of people who are wounded by the state. Mm-hmm. This most famous essay by Bonhoeffer is directly influenced by his time in New York. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, about politi- direct political engagement yeah. for people who are harmed by the state. On behalf of people who are harmed, not just binding up the wounds, but engage the government for the for the state. Okay. Then there are other pieces. He writes in discipleship as well um, about race. Second half of discipleship. Some of this is problematic, but he also is talking about the way that Christians should speak up for the neighbor when the church is listening to the nation instead of its God, so, uh, instead of its its um, instead of Christ. Um, and uh, concepts about race and so forth. He's talking about that in the second half of that. Um, and then in ethics, he's talking about the um, office of minister. Um, and he brings up this case that he was inflamed about, that he was upset about when he was a student mm-hmm. at Union. It's um, the case of Scottsboro Nine. Mm-hmm. Nine... African Americans in Scottsboro, Alabama, who were um, accused of raping a white woman. Bonhoeffer says a woman, a woman of dubious reputation, accused of raping her, um, and were rushed through trial and condemned to die. Hmm. It was a huge case in the United States hmm. while he was a student. He wrote back to um, he wrote back to Germany to a, uh, a church official and asked that the church in Germany, churches in Germany, also raise their voice because this had gained international attention, that they raise their voice and speak out against it. And the person wrote back to him and said, that's a social, political issue and we don't engage political issues. And um, in the 1940s, when he's writing ethics, he's still talking about it. Hmm. Upset about that. Yeah. It shows up in Ethics Suit, which is um, published, you know, as he, after he died. Wow. So those are just some of the ways it shows up. Of course, I would argue um, that the way he reads, uh, he reads um, engagement with Christ is also influenced by this time there. But most specifically, this political action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christ-inspired political action is directly connected to the and if that's not a great message for uh, right now, <laughs> October 2020, right before it, an election, to use political influence to uh, love your neighbor yeah. um, and vote. <laughs> um, yeah, right. it, just, it just came to mind. So uh, I, I appreciate this so much. I appreciate the time that you've given me so far. Um, I've, I learned so much and I feel like, I mean, obviously I'm coming with a really subjective view and I, I read all, through all of Bonhoeffer's works last year and... I definitely saw this, but nowhere to the extent I saw it after I've I, I read your book. I was like, man, I wish, I wish I would read this before so I could, you know, have a, uh, a a much closer eye on sort of the development of of the plot crisis and Bonhoeffer's writing. So, uh, so thank you for writing it. I do have one final question for you. I end every episode with the same question. It's a little game of Desert Island. If you were trapped on a desert island and you had to pick one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer, so. Uh, 
a biography, a book like yours, anything about Bionhoff, it's just a, a secondary source. Um, which two books are you taking? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, I guess it would be a toss-up because I really like um, Creation and Fall. There's a, um, I've been, yeah, Creation and Fall and or, no, Creation and Fall or Ethics. I yeah. want to spend some more time in it. Um, and the secondary source, you know, this Oxford Handbook Bonhoeffer that we just put together, it's got some great essays in it. It does. Yeah, I had, um, oh, was, I, yeah. I had Phil Ziegler on quite a while ago, probably like five, six months ago, um, about that specific, and, and I interviewed him about, um, about his essay on God. Um, and it, it was great. So I, I'm still working my way through it. It's, it's big. There's a lot of work in it. It's big and it's real expensive, but it's, it's a really good collection. But I also, I got to say, I like Renate Wynn's biography of Bonhoeffer. Huh. Renate Wynn. It's a really good Bonhoeffer biography. How do you spell in the last addition, name? Wynn. Um, W-I-N-D. Okay, great. I, I haven't heard of, the, of that biography. Awesome. I spoke in the wheel. It's this is a really really good biography. It's a it's a short one too, but it's 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 so good, so so good. She's a good Bonhoeffer scholar. Um, she's German, um, um, and you know she does she does a really really good job with it. And Ferdinand's is also very good. I, I hear one more. <laughs> That's good. Hey, this is what this is for. This is really just a, a way for me to get book recommendations. So I was really happy that you brought up a book that I had not heard of yet. So anything yeah. you got, I'll, I'll take it. Actually, two more. So this one was published a, a while ago. I took, I, I don't like the dust, these old dust jackets. So I always take it off, take them off. But this one's called I Knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's uh -huh. literally a bunch of, it's a collection of essays about Bonhoeffer by people who were friends with him. Or who knew him, or were his students? Um, Collins. Let me see the um, edited by Wolf Dieter Zimmerman and Ronald Gregor Smith. Okay. D Wolf Dieter Zimmerman is one of. I mean, he's he's referred to often as a person who people turn to for information about Bonhoeffer. And then this last one. This is theology. We're in the we're we're interacting with interacting with Bonhoeffer in a post Betka world. Mm -hmm. For most of for Bonhoeffer's introduction to the world came through Betka, and Betka was helping us understanding his, to understand his theology. Um, now it's given off given over to Bonhoeffer scholars today. Um, but this world come of age is a collection of essays. Um, that came from actually um, it's a it's a collection of essays from Bonhoeffer scholars, most notably Betka at the front of this thing. Hmm. He um, it's got Boltman in it, Hans Schmidt, Muller, Humphrey Muller, um, but the first part of this is a nice big chunk from Betka. Hmm. It's got Karl Barth as well. Hmm. Uh, um, that sounds great. But. If you're wanting to know specifically, I'll tell you this much here, a welcome of age 
um, Bonhoeffer is writing to Betka about religionless Christianity. Mm-hmm. Here, Betka describes what Bonhoeffer was doing with religionless Christianity. So there are lots of there's lots of um, secondary stuff on what did he mean by that, and people done you know work on that, but Betka's describing it there. <laughs> of course, he's and Bonhoeffer would oftentimes have work that he's doing like like together. Um, uh, uh, filtered through Becca, like Becca would give him back, give him his feedback on mm-hmm. what he was writing. That would have, that was what he would have done with religiousness, because he's writing this back and forth to Becca, and Becca is helping to interpret. So Becca says, "This is what he means," hmm. and there it is, um, in world world come of age. All right, well, I I have that, that is definitely on the to read list. I, I appreciate. Okay. You know, usually, most often the answer is like ethics and the Becca biography. It's like almost unanimous every one I've interviewed. So it's it's cool to get, you know, a, a, quite a few books that I haven't even heard of yet and that are definitely going to be on the docket. And will probably be, you probably just gave um, some more authors an email from me probably in a few months. Because <laughs> I'll probably get those books and, and want to interview someone. So, But I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And again, I, I appreciate the time. The book is Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. And you can find it probably on Amazon and anywhere where you probably get books. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that will wrap up our time together. And I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Bonhoeffer Podcast Patreon. Specifically, thank you to Soren Jensen for signing up for the Patreon. If you would like to join Soren and begin supporting the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod for more information. There's a few different options for signing up to support and we'd love to have you help us continue to make this podcast keep running. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And as always, thanks for listening.